Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this sermon of Fellowship Bible Church of Peers. We wanted to make you aware that in this sermon, a negative quote was attributed to Tom Brady, which we realized after the fact that he did not actually say. So we just wanted to clear that up beforehand and sincerely apologize for that error. Thank you again for listening. Good morning, church. It's such a joy to see you all this morning, this Lord's Day. Not just a normal Lord's Day, but also a baptism Sunday, a baptism Lord's Day. So this is a precious day for us as a church and for you six who are being baptized. I will remind us again what they are doing this afternoon, as Pastor Brandon mentioned. They will be going into the waters of baptism and therein professing that their, their union with Christ, their fellowship with Him in His death and in His resurrection, they were professing the, professing the remission of sins that they received when they believed in Him. They were professing their death to sin and their commitment to walk in the newness of life. It will be an incredible and momentous moment for them. And it is a joyous honor for us as a church to be able to walk alongside them in this time, to observe it and to be reminded of what we also profess in our baptisms. Now, as I was thinking about coming up to Baptism Sunday, I was really processing through and meditating on what would I say if I had five minutes to talk to each one of the baptism candidates, what would I, what would I say? What charges would I give them? What encouragements as they look forward to a life of following Christ? And as I was meditating on that and, and seeing the text that was assigned for this week, that we're preaching on and studying this text this week, I have been so moved by the providence of God that it really seems what Paul wants to communicate to Timothy and the charges Paul is giving to Timothy in this text would really just form the substance of what I would want to say to you baptism candidates. It captures the heart of what I would want to cry out to you. These three different charges that Paul wants to communicate through his word to Timothy, I think are rightly fitting for you today. And of course, are rightly fitting for the church always. So I want to pray for you, candidates. I want to pray for us, church, and for the preaching of God's word that the Lord would bless it richly. So join me in prayer. Father in heaven, I love what that song said. Lord, reveal your glory by the preaching of your word. That is our prayer. Reveal your glory by the preaching of your word. Lord, I think of those who are getting baptized today and who will give a testimony. Lord, I know how it is when you have to stand up front, you get nervous and you struggle with it. But I do pray for them that even as they sit and they hear this word, that they'll be able to receive it. The nerves they have would not take away from their ability to receive your word and have it impact them for their life to come. Oh Lord, also bless them through this word so that when they stand up here to give the, their testimony, their testimony would flow from a heart overflowing with love for you and for your gospel. Lord, prepare them through this service, Stephen. Act out the baptism this afternoon. And Lord, for everyone else. We know that we come in a busy week. We have things that distract us, things that derail us, things on our mind, pain, sorrow, griefs. But I pray that your word would meet every person and I pray that you would help their hearts to come and to be able to receive this word. As a song says, I pray that you would give freedom to those who feel in slavery, that you would give food to those who feel in hunger, you would give drink to those who thirst. And you would give riches to those who long to know you. Oh God, proclaim your glory, glory through the preaching of your word. Bless us, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, charge number one from God's word that I would give to you, baptism candidates, and I want to give to you, church, is this. Be realistic. Be realistic of what the Christian life entails. Be realistic of the world that you live in. 
Be realistic of the people that surround you outside of the church particularly, but perhaps sometimes even in the church. Be realistic of the perils of this age. In verse 1, Paul says this, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. The ESV says difficult times. Then captures the same idea. Know this, Timothy, in the last days there will be perilous times. I was just restudying recently the Battle of Britain. If you're familiar with it, it was that war fought early in the World War II over the Britain, British English mainland. And if you remember 1940s, 1941, the German armies were sweeping across the European continent and they got to the coast and they realized that all they had to do was take out Britain and that might be the way they could conquer the whole world. And once I was reading some of Winston Churchill's speeches on the eve of knowing that Germany is going to attack. And in summary, I think there was something like this. England, the bombers are in the air. The bombs are loaded. The targets are set. These are perilous times. These are serious times. Now is not the time for games. And then his charge to them was, you need to stand. You need to stand. I think much in the same way that's Paul's charge to Timothy. These are perilous times spiritually for you. These are perilous ages to live in as a Christian trying to walk the holy faith. Now something, there's a certain word in this verse 1 that makes me think this is not just for Timothy but also for us. I think that term, in the last days. Now to remind you what that means, when Paul uses the term last days, he's referring of the time from when Christ completed his redemption to when he's returning. In other words, any person that has lived since Jesus Christ is living in the last days. And so you could summarize Paul's charge here as like anyone, as anyone who is living since, any Christian living since Jesus Christ first came, is living in the last days. So church, understand this too. Be realistic. These are perilous, difficult days. We sing a song after baptism. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. I really think those words just capture the reality of it. Jesus says, if anyone desires to be a disciple, he must take up his cross and follow me. The Christian life involves carrying a cross. These are difficult days ahead. Now Paul's reason, if you notice, Paul's reason for why, main reason for why the days are difficult and the days will be perilous. Look in verse 2. For men will be, and then he lifts, gives a list of vices. These are going to be perilous times because of who you're going, be, going to be surrounded by. This is the how society in general is going to be, and some of these will come into the church. Be realistic. You'll be surrounded by wickedness in, in humanity. Let me just give, let me just go through these, because I think we can follow this. For men will be lovers of themselves. If you actually pause on that for a moment, we can realize this. The world around us is just full of self-love. Everywhere we look. And trying to get us to be the same way. Lovers of money. Lovers of money. Sam and I recently went to Brazil and we wanted to get a credit card because I think it's safer to have a credit card when you're in some backwater town. Um, and as I did this, you know, when you like do a search for a credit card, you suddenly get all these different advertisements, right? Or like your YouTube fills up with all these credit card advertisements. And I was just so struck how, how powerfully they were trying to communicate to you money, riches, wealth. You need to live for this. Rewards. This is what your life is about. Walk in this. And I just found how drawing it was, this the, the, the way they were communicating it to us. And this is the world we live in. Trying to grab you just to love for money around every corner. Boasters, proud. For me, I, I love, I really enjoy sports. 
I'm just so struck of even the pride in the sports world because these are our heroes. One of my favorite moments in sports history was, if you remember the Minneapolis miracle, right? (laughs) You know where I'm going with this, right? Amazing moment. Every Vikings fan in the world was just overjoyed, right? Stefan Diggs caught that touchdown and ran it in five years ago. But then do you remember he stood on the sidelines like this for like 30 seconds? If if you've seen the, you can picture this. It was just unbelievable. But but you know that every child watching that game was going, I want to be like him. I want to be like Diggs. These are the heroes of our world. Blasphemers. I think one that just really shook me, another one, probably the most famous man in the sports world, Tom Brady. Someone asked him, how great do you think he are? And he says, Well, I don't know. Did Jesus ever throw six touchdowns in a game? So so just the combination of the pride and blasphemy in one, but these are the heroes that we look up to and long to be like and that your children are watching. Disobedient to parents. I wish I could remember. I was trying to remember just a recent, fairly popular movie I watched and I was just so stunned how the children treated the parents and how that was considered normal in society. And I think if you like slow down and watch some of the, just the way children's interaction with parents are treated, you will be stunned by just the blatant disobedience that is across the board as normal. This is the world that we live in trying to derail us unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. I could go down the list on every one of these. I feel like you could as well. Slanderers, without self-control, brooders, brutal, despisers of good. Feels like the world around us is despising everything that's good. Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That one's obvious, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does that not describe this? Does that not describe the society that we live in? And the truth of it is, these are the perilous days that any Christian who has lived since Christ is in. But I think Paul's warning to Timothy is it's not just outside of the church, right? It's not just society in general, but it's also in the church. Look at verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Kind of similar to like a mannequin when you see it in a store, right? It looks like a human being, but it doesn't have any life. It's not actually real. It has a form of it, but it's not true. In the same way, it's like, yeah, in the church, there will be those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. And they will seek to deceive you, I think is his point. Then in verse 6, he says this. Listen to his concern that he's seeing in the Ephesian church. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. In other words, it seems like these guys who, with their mannequin theology, these false theological positions, are coming into these houses and are receiving and are received open arms by these, as Paul says, these gullible women who are taking them in. And so, therefore, this false, awful theology is getting a foothold in the door into the church. He's like, be watchful. Now, I think there's two twin engines of what causes this gullibility. I think on the one hand, you can see from the rest of the letters of Timothy, one of the issues is that uh, the, some of these sisters are being very idle. And so therefore, they're becoming discontent with life, and you could say they're becoming discontent with Christ. And so some false theologian shows up with this bad theology kind of this faddish theology, and it intrigues them. Yeah, I'm kind of interested in that. Tell me more. Especially if they're offering promises of maybe material wealth, whatever it is. 
Yeah, tell me more about this because they become wanton against Christ, Paul says in other texts. Now I think the other side of it though is that it's the sisters in the Ephesians church were weak in their theology. Okay, the other side of this is that the sisters were weak in their theology. Sam always likes, loves that quote. That quote by John Piper is like, women cannot be wimpy in their theology. Women cannot be wimpy in their theology. And I think this is one of the warning passages for that. One of my longings as I was reading this text, and as I was praying over it, was as if Paul would write a letter to the church at FBC. And he would say, FBC peers, I commend you. I commend you that when guys with faddish theologies came and tried to find a foothold among the women of the church, they got kicked in the face, spiritually. (laughs) The women knew better. They wanted nothing to do with it. They were robust in their theology. They knew the word of God. They weren't interested in the garbage that these guys had to offer. And so I encourage you, sisters, I commend you for how you are growing in your grasp of the word of God and in doctrine. But I also want to encourage you, press in, that you would not be wimpy in theology, but would be strong and robust in it. If you remember that analogy that I gave last week, right, of the three different golf clubs, I think these are the three main means of growing in depth, right? One, you got the driver, right? The preaching of God's word, the Sunday service. Come to the Sunday service. Receive the preaching of God's word. Grow. Observe how the word is handled and how is it applied. Then you have the irons, right? The smaller group times. Discipleship groups, Bible study. Come to these. Learn how to handle the word of God. Grow from them. Sunday school. Really Sunday school. That's one of our purposes of Sunday school is that we wouldn't be wimpy in theology for everyone. That's one of the reasons we do them. Then also something maybe you haven't thought of, we have this training time in fall, starting in fall, called Titus 2 training. If you're familiar with that, what it is is a time where we... Pastor Brandon gathers together with the sisters of the church and they go through some deeper material. I was just ask, asking Sam how, how much that impacted her and you're just so blessed by it, challenged by it, deepened by it, feel equipped by it. They were going through some amazing theological statements of faith. Like we went through the six, you went through the 1689. All that every sister in church would have that doctrine of that depth. And so I encourage you, this fall, it's open to all sisters of the church. Consider that. Consider coming to Titus 2 training. It's once a month on a Tuesday. But it's expected that it's a commitment because I think deep doctrine grows in the soil of commitment. So I just encourage you on just coming to Titus 2. And then, of course, the one-on-one, right, the putting. Seek out sisters to pour into you, even in the realm of Deep theology. Now, one other thing I want to say in verse 7 on that. It says they're always, these ladies, right? They're always learning, but they're never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, I think what he's saying there is that they're always learning from these guys because it's an empty shell, because it's mannequin theology. They're actually not getting anywhere. The fruit they're eating is rotten. It's not giving any sustenance. And so that's where I want to give a practical encouragement, which I think I have to give from this text. Just because you're reading a book, or just because a book has a Christian name on it, does not mean that it will be beneficial. Just because you buy a book in a Christian bookstore does not mean it's going to actually lead you to the truth. There's a lot of really garbage books out there written in the name of Christ. So be warned from this text on that. 
And if you're feeling stretched, like you struggle to discern that, I pray reach out to one of us. We'd love to point you in the direction of some good books. But also, that's actually one of the heart for why we have a church library. Because we really tried to curate it so that you could find good books that we believe will actually lead you to the knowledge of the truth. I really especially commend, if you walk in there from the fourth shelf on the right, Pastor Brandon's recommended reading shelf. I think it's a book, a great, a lot of great books there that we've specifically read through and have been blessed by. So I want to encourage that. I'd also say that on podcasts, what you're listening to, right? Realize that some are better than others. Sister actually reached out to me and asked, like, so what are some great, you know, good podcasts to listen to that'll actually be beneficial? Um, I love that question. I commend that. Here, I'll just, I'll just give you a, a couple, just to get really nuts and bolts here, just a couple that if you have some extra time and you're listening to things that you might be blessed by. Um, one, I have loved Ask Pastor John by John Piper. If you want something to listen to, Ask Pastor John by John Piper. That is an excellent podcast where he pastorally deals with deep truths. Renewing Your Mind, R.C. Sproul. I think Grace to You by John MacArthur. And then I really like uh, Pray the Word by David Platt. He's just a three or four minute clip of just teaching how to pray the word. Now again, we don't think these replace church life, but I think they can be a sweet sustenance or an addition to it. Now lastly, in this section of, I think, be, Paul's charge of be realistic, he names these two guys, Jonas and Jambres. I don't know if I said that right, but these two guys. And it's kind of an interesting text or an interesting example Paul chooses because we don't actually read of these guys in the Old Testament. But it seems like these two guys um, are expected, at least through Jewish tradition, to be the ones that oppose Moses. And so Paul appeals to them as the negative examples, as a type of those who will oppose the work of God, right? But listen to what he says in verse 9. But they will proceed, progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all. I think what I was struck by in that is if someone is actually not teaching the truth, then they're always probably going to be worried that, that we can know their folly will be manifest. We can know that they will be revealed for what they are. But if we're actually teaching the truth, we can stand in that. I kind of think, remember I gave the Lance Armstrong analogy last week? I really imagine that, that Lance Armstrong really was nervous his entire life that something was going to come up. Anytime someone mentioned anything to him about, hey, did you cheat? He probably got nervous. Even as he was racing, he was probably nervous that someday he'd be found out. He was always worried that his crown would be taken. But church, those who are standing in Christ and walking in his word truly need not worry that their crown will be taken. For they are walking the true race and running it faithfully. So if we can summarize that first section, right, be realistic, and we could say that the world in which we live in and those we're surrounded by is somewhat like a minefield, then I would say the second charge is that God's word is like the map that will guide you through. So if the world we're living in is practically a minefield, God's word is the map that will guide you through. Now I'm going to read verses 15 through 17. Say with me on this. Verses 15 and 17 through 17. From childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, as I'm working through this section, I want to do it in a twofold way. One, I feel the need to talk about the technicalities of the Word of God and the doctrines and how we should think about the Word of God, but then I really want to help it touch home, right, get to our hearts. 
So stay with me as we kind of build the nuts and bolts of it. First point about the word of God, verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now I think that is one of the clearest and most important lines regarding the scriptures that you'll ever read. You could say the most important thing about God's word is that it's God's word. Meaning, it's inspired by him, it is breathed by him. I love the way that that VBS song puts it, yours that we sang a couple weeks ago, your spirit wrote through men, like the pen in the hand of a God who knew. Do you remember this? In other words, God inspires it by writing it through, by speaking his word through the pens of holy men throughout history. Now the reason I say I think that's the foundation of how we must understand the word of God is because it's the basis for how we look at it. For you could say in a way, if God breathed it then, if it is God's word, then as God is, so also is his word. So if God is true, so his word is true. If God is trustworthy, so his word is trustworthy. If God cannot lie, then his word cannot lie. If God is unchanging, then his word is unchanging. If God is holy, then his word is holy. It is God-breathed. It is inspired by God. The word that we put on that is inerrant. Maybe you haven't heard that term. Inerrant means without error. You could also say infallible. It's unable to fail. I really like the term inerrant. God's word is inerrant because it is inspired by God. It is not able to err. It is true in everything it speaks to. Now there's this acronym that I found really helpful that I think captures or fills this out a little more. Maybe you've heard this before. But the acronym of CANS, right? C-A-N-S, to describe the different aspects of the Word of God. Under C, you have clarity, right? The Bible is clear. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness implies that it can be understood and that it can be applied. The authority, it is fully authoritative. That's right there in verse 16. It's breathed out by God, therefore it's authoritative. Like the pen in the hand of a God who knew. It's necessary. It's necessary for salvation. It's necessary that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Not only complete and equipped, but that they may actually be saved. The word of God is fully necessary, right? Then the S, it is sufficient. It is able to make you complete. So maybe that's going to be helpful for you to think about the word of God. Just the clarity, the authority, the necessity, and the sufficiency. Now stay with me a little more on the technicalities. But I want to be clear what I'm saying is that I mean the original copy was inerrant. Okay? So the original manuscript was inerrant. So basically there was one manuscript in Greek that Paul took and he wrote to Timothy. That one was inerrant. Okay? But we also have incredible trust that the Bible we have today is also God's word. Because it has been maintained faithfully through thousands upon thousands upon thousands of faithful copies. Now I feel the need to say this because I think you're going to maybe run into this especially if you go off to college or as you run into more people in the world. But there are many people who will say, well, don't some of the copies have errors in them? My answer is, yes, some of the copies do have errors. Because the original author was inspired, not the monk in the monastery. But we still have great trust in it. Because we have almost 6,000 different manuscripts, at least of the Greek tradition, which can be compared against each other. Now the way I've helpfully had it analogized to me, analogized to me, is if you take a cup, right? Which is a manuscript. And the cup has a couple holes in it, right? 
oh, it looks like the cup has some mistakes in it. And it can't really hold water. But if you pile another cup that might have a couple holes in it, and then you keep piling them, it becomes stronger and stronger. So much so that if you pile 6,000 cups on top of it, it's completely stable, able to hold whatever you put in it. The point being, the manuscripts can be compared against each other, and therefore we know with great accuracy what is the Word of God. Another way to say it, if I were to say I wanted to write a letter or a note to the nursery, right? And I would want to say, I like, I want to say, let's say I like chocolate, right? And I want to communicate that. But I want each, I want to keep my personal note, but I want each one of you to take the note and to copy that for me. And so I would pass it among each one of you and you would copy, I like chocolate on it. Now one of you, when you do this, seems to forget the word I. So there's 99 copies that have I like chocolate on it, but there's one that just says like chocolate. Now when we take back those 100 copies to the nursery room and they lay it out on a table, would they have any question what the original one said? Would they have any question what I originally meant? Even if they would see one with a mistake. No, because the 99 bear clear witness. And I think that's the great confidence that we have. One more beautiful thing about the Word of God is that God read it in such a way that it can be translated. If you're holding a Bible in your hand or have one at home in the English, I don't know if you realize how precious it is what you're actually holding. One, that it's the Word of God, but two, that it's an English translation. I was just reading the history of the first English Bibles, 1400, 1500, and realizing that the first English Bibles were basically written in blood. Not literally, but these guys were burned at the stake for daring to put a Bible in the English language. We don't want the common people being able to read. Tyndale, Wycliffe, all of those who carried it for him? Do you realize what you hold? Men and women died to get the Bible translated into English. Oh, I love that one quote by William Tyndale, someone, one of the first translators of the English Bible. Some scholar from England wrote to him and said, well, just, you better stop what you're doing. Stop trying to get a Bible in the English language. His response was, my hope is that every plowboy in England would know the Bible better than you. (laughs) In other words, I want every person, man or woman, walking behind a plow to be able to know the word of God, to be able to stand on it, to know the gospel from it, and to be able to build their life around it. He died for those statements. He was burned at the stake as a heretic. Thank God for men such as that, that we have the English Bible in our t- language, in our tongue. Now something I also want to put to your attention is that not every language is as lucky as we are. Do you realize there are thousands of language groups around the world that have not one ounce of the Bible translated into their language? About 2,000. There's about 3,000 that have a partial one. But praise God for those who are doing the work to get it into their language. There's men and women around the world laboring to see a Bible in every nation and every tribe and in every tongue. Because what they understand is when you get a Bible into their language, then they'll hear the gospel even clearer and then their church will actually be able to continue. Sam and I were, were talking and Just discussing, like, what would be, in serving Christ, what would be one of the greatest joys of our life? 
And for both of us, it was just so obvious to, to be able to go to a language where Christ has never been named, to preach the gospel there, to see a church planted there, and then to have the wonder of handing them a finished copy of the word of God in their tongue. And the mission world is starting to realize how important translation is. I want to really commend to you this uh, this little clip, actually, of this man called Brooks Bruiser went to the Papua New Guinea, and he's a twenty. It's about a twenty-year process, but it was about a it's a thirty-minute documentary of his time of planting the church there, seeing it built up, and then if you if you've seen this, you know where I'm going. But the last five minutes of it is a scene of when he brings the Bible to them. It's unbelievable. The whole church is gathered there, hundreds upon hundreds of them. They had asked the Brooks to bring the elders of his church to be the ones passing it off. <laughs> Amazing. It's like, those are the ones who sent you, so bring the word with them. And so it shows them flying on the plane, carrying the box of Bibles the first ones they'll receive in their tongue and language. And then it shows them landing and Hardy hardly describes the word. Hardy describes what happened. Just incredible. Hundreds of them just dancing in song and in worship and just wonder that God would bring them his word. And then they carried the Bible through and handed it to one of the elders and he read from John to them. It's amazing. And then he said after that, he's like, I feel like I could die a happy man. Anyway, that one's called the Yembi Yembi documentary. That's very worthwhile for your family to watch. The Yembi Yembi, Y-E-M-B-I, right on YouTube. So I really think just an application, my longing for you is that every if they had a party when they received the word that really every time you open God's word, you'd have a mini party in your heart. This is his word. Thank you, Lord, for preserving it and bringing it home and letting me, letting me taste it. Now, the other side I want to talk of on the Holy Scriptures I don't want you just to have a sound understanding of the word of God to be able to articulate in defense of why the word of God is authoritative or why it is true or why the manuscripts are right I do want you to read it every day <laughs> but not but not just as a dry book I long for you that you would your heart would engage deeply with the Holy Word of God. I was challenged by a article. He was describing, I think, what a lot of us have felt. You know, when you read the Word of God, and it just feels like there's a sort of fog. Like you read a chapter, and it's like, I didn't really get anything out of that. What happened? Then you kind of can't even remember what you read. Sort of similar, like when you you know there's a beautiful mountain, but it's obscured in fog. You can kind of see the outline. My longing for you, baptism candidates, as you read the word every day, church, that you wouldn't just stay in that place of fog. That you would press through it. Or that you would press through that fog and you'd, you'd get to the, the core of the text. You'd get to the message of what the author is trying to say. You'd wrestle with the words, somewhat like a dog chews on a bone. You'd want to know what is he communicating. I love the way Luther said, he's like, I just hammered the word of God that I may know what it has for me. I bore myself upon it. I long for you that you would be able to say what David says. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Is the word of God sweet to you? 
I really feel, even as I was meditating myself on that analogy, I really feel like we don't really grasp even that, what he's saying. Because Paul is trying to reach for the sweetest thing that is known in the ancient world, honey. He's like, this is how sweet your word is to me. Now I also think some of you guys who don't have a sweet tooth struggle to grasp what this word is saying. But I feel like David here is speaking my language. Okay, if you know me, I like sugar a lot. Yeah, under, understatement, okay. Like it was one of my happiest moments to find out that French vanilla creamer came into half-gallon jugs. You remember this, Phil? <laughs> you can find it at Walmart. <laughs> good stuff, good stuff. Or my... Grandma the other day gave us a bag of Godiva chocolates. And I told Sam, amazing chocolate. And I told Sam, I'm like, Sam, if you literally don't hide this, it'll be gone in a couple days. <laughs> so some of us have weaknesses. We just have to deal with them. So thank you, Sam. But I also know sometimes that I eat too much sugar, right? And so I'll have these times where I'll try to stop, like I'll go on a sugar fast for like a week or so or whenever. And if you've ever done something like that, if you've ever gone on a fast of that sort, when you actually finally allow yourself to cheat a little bit and you put in that piece of chocolate into your mouth, <laughs> it's hard to describe the wonders. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. I'm not. Like That is an amazing moment. Just the sweetness of it. So much. This is what David is trying to say. The sweetest thing that you can imagine. Lord, your words are sweeter than that. I long for that for you. I long for that for you. Peter uses the analogy as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Right? The babe knowing they need food and just crying out for it. Another metaphor I really like, streams in the desert. It's not in the Bible, but others have used it. I'm just blessed by that, right? Just wandering through a desert land and your word is like streams to me like a fountain that I, where I may drink. Now, I think the question we're probably all wondering is, okay, so practically, like what are some ways that the Lord will grow this sweetness for, our, for us and for our hearts? Now, I pr realize that primarily receiving the sweetness of taste is a work of God. And so I pray that for you. But per usual, there's also things that can stand in the way for us tasting it. And I don't want to work through some of them. One, I think I need to say this out at the outset. Sometimes we're just in a dry season. And it feels kind of strange to say that. Like the fountain of the word of God can sometimes just be dry. Or it's just, it's hard to find sweetness there. This is God's word. But there is a night and day difference between not finding sweetness in God's word because you're not going to it than by continuously availing yourself upon it and still just struggling to find that sweetness. So I think the first key to growing and understanding or one of the first blocks is to taste in that sweetness is not continuing in it. Church, are you continuing to come to the fountain of God's word? Are you continuing to seek him, to know him through his word? I think another block can be sin. Sometimes you come to the fountain to drink, but there's sin that's hindering your ability to drink. 
Now, I'd encourage you in those times, I've had those moments, what I find really precious is going to some of the prayers of confession in the Bible and praying them. Psalm 51 is an excellent one. Lord, against you have I sinned. Requesting that he would open your heart that you may taste again of his word. But even if you're not sure, I would still encourage you, still come to his word. Because the beauty of the word, as you see in verse 16, is that it's for reproof or correction. It exposes our sin as well. So if we're coming and we're feeling dry, God's word can show us our sin. And then itself help us to taste it as well. To turn from it and come back to him. Next. As I was thinking about even some of the, the sugar fasts I've done, something I realized during those times was how sweet like regular fruit, fruit actually became. Have you ever experienced that? Like the more you cut back on manufactured sugars, the sweeter bananas, blueberries, strawberries will just become to you. It's kind of incredible. I want to say the same thing. I think manufactured sweetnesses, the manufactured highs of this world can absolutely dull our senses to be able to drink of the word of God. Those of you youth who are being baptized and are seeking in God's word, you live in an absolute, you live in the era of the smartphone. You live in the era of manufactured highs. Ten-second clips. Five-second attention spans. Don't always be surprised when you come to God's Word and you don't have, you can pay attention for more than 15 seconds. If you really feel that you're struggling to receive God's Word, or for like 20, like you can't pay attention for more than 20 seconds or it's boring to you. Realize that it may be the manufactured highs that you're just continuously intaking and, and work with it. Deal with it. Actually, an amazing book that Zach recommended to you, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. I read it a couple years ago. That, that blessed me a lot. So if you want to think deeply about that, I would commend that book. But then I would also say just to the church as a whole, because I think even as you're listening, you know this is true. Too much TV, sports, video games can absolutely just inoculate you to the scriptures. Or just make you unable to take it in. Think about this church. Next, I think busyness. Busyness. We're wandering through the desert. We come past the fountain. We dip our toe in and then go, God, why wasn't I refreshed? Lord, why didn't you bless me through that? So my encouragement to you now, baptism candidates, and I feel like if I was older, man, I could say this even clearer, but I think every year you grow older, you're going to get more busy. So set good standards now for slowing down at the word of God. Establish them now and walk in them and stay in them that you may drink. Church, and we know this as well. I encourage the same thing for you. No, slow down at the word of God. We cannot be those who just dip our toes in and then run past. You know that's not going to sustain. And then some other things that I would just practically encourage. Come with expectation to the Word of God. There is just something like, I think the Lord wants to bless you when you come like, Lord, I know this is your Word. I want to receive from you. That He wants to bless that. Just that hard attitude of coming to Him. Come with expectation. And prayerfully. You're going to have those days when you're reading God's word. And it's just dry. Pause and pray. Lord, 
my heart feels dry in receiving this. Help me to receive it. Maybe pray before him. I want you to know the sweetness of God's word. I want us all to grow in drinking deeply at his fountain. Now maybe the most important thing I could say on this is this. The word of God is sweet. Why? Because of who it's about. The word of God is sweet because of who it's about. When I read verses 2 through 5, this is who we come to the word of God as. I read this list. Lovers of self, lovers of money, boaster, proud, blasphemer, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderer, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitor, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, guilty as charged. Such were all of us. Not all of them, most of those vices. Such were we. We come to God's word broken. But what makes it so sweet is because it's about the one who can actually give us hope. It's about the only hope that such a broken person has. It's all about Jesus Christ. John 5.39, Jesus said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. But these are they which testify of me. It's all about Jesus. I love that VBS song we sang. You guys remember this? From Genesis to Revelation, there's one story of the great salvation. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. We did those actions. <laughs> right? But shout it out on every page. There's one hero that'll save the day. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. There's actually this amazing part to that song, a rap section. Don't worry, I'm not actually going to rap it, but I'll read it. Maybe if Nate gave me a beat. No, no, I'm kidding. But, but track with this. Track with these words, because I think in... A child's language, it just so well captures how it's all about Jesus. Stay with this. Even from Eden we read, the serpent would be crushed by the seed of Eve, cause all glory belongs to the Son, every story pointing to the Holy One. Like when Abraham put Isaac on the altar, he pulled the knife, but God, he never falters. Faithful to his promise, he would provide a substitute ram for the sacrifice. Now he gave commandments so we could see his holiness and our desperate need. Then, there were so many temporary sacrifices, none of them were perfect. No, but Christ is. The prophets spoke and they were not liars. God would send his own son to be Messiah. Rescue, redeem, restore, reclaim. Every saint loves his holy name because he died on the cross to take our place. The final substitute and eternal grace. Then he rose from the grave and up to the throne until he comes again to gather his own. From Genesis to Revelation, there's one story of a great salvation. It's all about Jesus. The word of God is sweet because it's about him. The word of God is sweet because it's about him. Because it offers us the only hope. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But the, God, the God's word tells us about Christ, the only one who can give us life and salvation and repentance and faith. Now I think that leads to my third and final charge from God's word. We must be realistic. We must perse we'll persevere by following God's word, but also follow Christ-like examples. Follow Christ-like examples. Because really that's what discipleship is. It's imitating someone as they imitate Christ. In a word, it's 
we could say it's putting flesh on the God-breathed word. We can read in God's word what we're supposed to look like, but godly examples help us actually see what that looks like. Helps us actually, we can read what Christ was like, and it tells us what we should be like, but then we look at others and we see Christ in them. We learn from them. I'm getting this from verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, long-suffering, and he continues. But here he's telling Timothy, Timothy, these are dangerous times, but you know who you've watched. You've watched me, Timothy, walk. You followed my doctrine. You followed my teaching. I really love, the reason I love discipleship, because it really just helps, like I said, the word of God and the commands just touch home. As a young pastor, I've studied theology and I've studied the doctrine. But sometimes it's like, how do I apply this? And I feel like Timothy would think the same way. How do I apply this? But then you get to watch Pastor Brandon or one of the elders or one of the older men just applying this doctrine to someone's life. And I'm going, okay. I see how you know that doctrine and I see how you apply it and stand on it. It just helps me grasp it or your manner of life. You can just imagine watching Timothy, watching Paul's life. Like every part of his life. How Paul woke up in the morning. What did Paul do first thing in the morning? Did he read the word of God? Did he pray? If he was frying bacon and it splattered on him, what did he do? Maybe not pork, I don't know. (laughs) Not in that era, it's hard to come by. (laughs) Anyway, but you, you get the picture. Or just setting off for the journey? How did he set off? How did he talk with people along the way? When he's passing through a city and he's talking to someone in the marketplace, what things does he say? When does he pause for prayer? How focused is he? When he's walking through some of these Greek cities, does he pause and turn aside to some of the sporting events? Maybe. Does he take naps? But mainly, like, what's his purpose? What's his focus? How much time does he spend in prayer? How much of the Old Testament? How much of the New Testament did he read? What is his manner of life? Timothy's there watching him every step of the way. His purpose, his faith. I remember when I was younger, I actually thought faith meant like you don't look both ways when crossing the street. Or you just pull out. I'm like, thank God for discipleship. <laughs> no, Daniel, that's not what faith looks like, right? You're blind. <laughs> but you're wrestling with what faith looks like and then you watch someone in deep pain and sorrow, maybe mourning the loss of someone, but they're still saying, no, but I trust my God. I trust his hand. I'm going, okay, I see faith. Or someone who's struggling because they lost their job. How am I going to provide for my family? But then you also see them, but my God knows. He will provide. Do you see this? How we see Christ living out his word, living out, people living out the word, and therefore we can see Christ in them. I think of long suffering. You reference it this morning. To be honest, I feel like I haven't suffered that much in my life. But when I read God's word, it's just very clear to me that suffering is a part really of a, every life. And if the Lord tarries, I don't know what life has for me and Sam. I don't know. And I often read in the scriptures of Christ's suffering. And I'm moved by that, right? I'm challenged by that. And I'm deepened in my faith by it. But the thing is, I can't see him. I think one of the deepest things that's going to motivate me, church, as I start going through my, if I go through sufferings, 
is going to be having the moments where I watch those of you faithfully suffer and go through painful moments and deal with them much in the way Christ would have. And I think those will stir me on. I can't visibly see Christ now, but I can see him through you. The way you grieve, the way you mourn, where your priorities are, your purpose, how you stand. Thank you. Thank you for your example. I think in love, Paul says, Timothy, you followed my love. I think love just feels like one of those words that's, it can seem very abstract when you read it. Someone showed there's a song they wrote, what is love? People just wonder what that means because it's such a deep word. And I know I can read God's word and I can be struggling, what does this look like, right? But then I come to church and I just see it lived out in so many of you. I see it in Hopper on Saturday coming and just pouring her time into putting together the bulletins for us, right, that we may be blessed by the service. Our brother John sending muffins with Nathan. <laughs> Keep doing that, brother. <laughs> or just, yeah, my dad helping me fix something, taking time out of his busy day, my mom hosting people in the home. Lois writing a note of affirmation right when you needed it. Do, do you see this? Like you struggle to see what love looks like, but then you see what it looks like, and then it's like, now I, I think I see Lord, and I'm shaped by that. I'm deepened by that. <laughs> and perseverance, no doubt, as Paul watched, or Timothy watched Paul persevere, just being hauled off to prison again, year beaten, but still preaching the same message. Recant and you'll be let go. No. Or he's writing here as an old man. He probably watched him for decades. You've seen my perseverance. You've seen it. <sighs> I am so blessed by those of you in the church who have just persevered in the faith for so many years. Because in that I see the example that I am called to. So thank you. In persecutions, afflictions, and Paul lists a couple, what happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I adore, endured. They're just reiterating again, bringing to Timothy's mind some of the painful things that he had to deal with and how Timothy watched him through the midst of it all and was unwavering. Then he says this in verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Do you see how he sets up telling Timothy that he's going to go through persecution and suffering? You have seen how I dealt with it. You have watched me persevere. You have seen my purpose. All those desiring to live a godly life will suffer persecution. In other words, Timothy, you're going to be dealing with persecution and sufferings. But you have seen my example. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. I think a word for us on this. One will be encouraged and look to just the examples of Christ-likeness in the church and your discipleship relationships. And learn from them. Learn from each other what it looks like to follow Christ. The church as a whole, but then one-on-one. -on -one. Then I think from the other side, we you know this, just how much we're actually being watched by those around us. People observe our life. Let us be examples of Christ to the world around us, but also to each other. Parents, you know your children are watching you. I just have in my mind the picture of, you know, how the dad walks and then you see the son walk by and it's like almost identical. You know, the, the same walk. You know what I'm talking about. 
Your children are watching you, learning from you. How you value church. How you value his word. How you walk with Christ. Then also just church as a whole to the everyone around you at work. You might be the only picture of Christ they have. Right? Stand as if examples of him. In conclusion, those are the three charges I want to leave you with. Those of you who are getting baptized, but also the whole church. Be realistic what this will cost and the war that it will be. Let God's word be a lamp to your feet. Know it. Trust it. Drink deeply from it. Taste the sweetness of it and find Christ all over it. And last, find and watch godly examples in the church as a whole, but then one-on-one, learning from them what it looks like to walk a life in godliness in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that shapes us and changes us. And I pray that your word will have its full effect today. Now help our hearts turn to hearing even the testimonies of these baptism candidates. Lord, bless them as they come forward. Magnify your holy name in these next minutes and hours. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.